Well, we're going to talk this morning about Amos, and one of the things that um, I love about having school-age kids is getting to read the Chronicles of Narnia, and the books, and just the picture that they paint of Aslan, C.S. Lewis paints in the books, of a lion that is beautiful and lovable and endearing and yet awesome and powerful and awe-inspiring and, and wild even. And that picture that C.S. Lewis paints so helps us, right, get a picture of God. And I love when the characters in the stories encounter Aslan because it's always um, just beautifully described the emotions that they feel. And one of my favorite encounters in the series is in The um, Horse and His Boy. It's at the end, you've got two horses and a girl, um, Wynne and Bree and a girl, Erebus. And near the end of the story, Bree, one of the horses, is he's arrogantly trying to describe Aslan, whom he's never seen to them. And as he's trying to describe Aslan, the real Aslan comes up, unbeknownst to him, comes up behind him. And listen to this response as Wynne and Erebus see Aslan come up. They had good reason to have open mouths and staring eyes. Because while Bree spoke, they saw an enormous lion leap up from outside and balance itself on top of the green wall. Only it was a brighter yellow, and it was bigger and more beautiful and more alarming than any lion they had ever seen. And at once, it jumped down inside the wall and began approaching Bree from behind. It made no noise at all, and Wynne and Erebus couldn't make any noise themselves, no more than if they were frozen. It goes down. Then Wynne, though shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said, you are so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anything else. And that's her response to Aslan. In contrast, um, my kids got all in to the Webkin's craze years ago, right? And we had lots. And my son saved up his money and he bought this and he named it Aslan, <laughs> you know? And I thought, well, that's a pretty pitiful Aslan, right? It's just cuddly and lovable, but it's really not very awe-inspiring. And um, our author, um, Salvaggio, calls, in the book of Amos, he calls it a toothless lion. And this would sort of be my picture of a toothless lion in our lives. And this morning, I would submit to you in my own heart, there's a tension to see God more like this lion, right? To functionally, even though we know, we know he's the Lord, but to functionally, day in, day out, really have a God that's more like this than the lion of Judah. And we would never look at this and say, I'd rather be eaten by you than fed by anything else. And that's the culture that Amos was 
speaking to when he spoke to Israel. That's what he was called to tell them. Y'all have the handouts there. You can follow along. There's a verse at the top that's sort of the key verse in the book. And it's in chapter 3, verse 8, when Amos says, A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? God is the lion that has roared. Who will not fear? Now, I need context when I am reading things like this in Scripture. And a couple years ago, I was, um, I was studying Isaiah, and I just felt completely disoriented in the king's and the biblical history of what was going on. And so I was like, I want to understand this. I want to get this straight. So I found a little chart, and I think it's in your handouts too. And this little chart has been such a help to me. I literally, it's all folded up um, right next to my Bible. Anytime I'm in Scripture that um, has to do with anything in this era, I just have to go, okay, wait, where am I? Okay, what's going on? Okay, and I pull this out. So let's get oriented for a second to the context of what's going on and, um, and review even for a minute. So if, if you're looking at your chart here, this picks up at the beginning of the divided kingdom. So we have King David, King Solomon. With Solomon's sons, the, king is, the kingdom is divided. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Southern kingdom is the tribe of Judah. The northern kingdom is marked by a series of kings that fall into a progressive decline. And you can look at the chart there, and it's sort of, I guess maybe I'm a visual learner too, maybe if you are, this will help you, but to see these kings um, in red, and red on this chart indicates a king that was not God-fearing, that led them into idol worship. And so you can see a series of declines with the exception of of, of Jehu a bit, but he didn't end well. So we have a series of decline until ultimate captivity by Assyria. So can you follow that on the chart? That's the northern kingdom of Israel. You can see Elijah and Elisha early on the chart. And if you look at the southern kingdom, we have a mixture of God-fearing kings and idol-worshiping kings and um, until ultimately um, they get a little bit longer before they're ultimately um, go into captivity with Babylon. So if we want to orient ourselves to Amos, you would put your finger right in the middle of this chart on Jeroboam II. Um, down in Judah, you have um, Azariah. But we're up in Jeroboam II in Israel, and that's where we are. Now, at this time in history, Israel is enjoying a bit of peace. They were constantly had had threats by Egypt and Babylon and Assyria. Those were the big threats in their day. And, but at this time, there happens to be, in Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, weak kings on the throne and, um, and trouble in those kingdoms. And since they have weak kings and trouble in their own kingdoms, they are not at this time trying to attack Israel. And so there's this little bubble of history for Israel when they are enjoying what's really a false sense of security and they're feeling a little comfort. They've had civil war, but now Jeroboam's come on the throne and he's enforced the borders and there's peace in the land. And, um, 
It won't last for long. In fact, it only lasts for about 40 or 41 years before um, these kingdoms began to get strong rulers again, and they're back under threats and attacks. But there's this little bubble of time when there's peace and prosperity. And whenever we feel peace and prosperity, inevitably, what does the human heart do? But we begin to trust in those things, right? We just fall right in line. That comfort and that security and that peace becomes our functional God, becomes our functional idol, and, um, and we trust in that. And we're given over in our human hearts to comfort and luxury and greed. And that's exactly the context that Amos is speaking into. He actually was from Judah. He says he was, he bred livestock and he dressed sycamore trees in Judah. So the Lord literally pulled this man out of relative obscurity and spoke to him to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel. So that's where we are. The next question, and that's kind of the, the you know, here I am on a map of, um, of historical history there. So the next question, though, is, is what? What was Amos called to tell them? And as any prophet, he's called to bring really a harsh word of judgment, impending judgment on Israel. He portrays throughout this book a picture of an awesome God who is coming with wrath and judgment on the people of Israel. Let's look at some of the text. We're kind of just to tell you, we're kind of going to glance through some of the text and, and see what is he saying to them. Let's start with Amos 5, verses 16 through 20. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this, there shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day the Lord gave to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? There is nowhere to hide for the people of Israel. He paints some pictures of the Lord uh, you can turn to chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. And he's painting a picture for them. This is the Lord that you have forsaken. Lastly, let's look at verse 9, or chapter 9, rather. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell there mourn. 
all of it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his lairs in the sky and has founded his strata in the earth, who calls for the water of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. So over and over again in this book, we see Amos painting a picture of the Lord who's coming in wrath and coming in judgment. It will be as though a serpent, they lean their hand on the wall and a serpent bit their hand, as though a lion came and they ran from the lion only to be attacked by a bear. There's a picture here of the coming wrath of God in judgment. So the next question to ask is what do they do? What do they do to bring on the wrath of God? Well, the overarching thing is they forsook God. They forsook God in their hearts. But specifically, what was going on in their culture is really three big things. One, they had empty worship. This is so um, gutting to me because they were going through the motions of worship. Like they were singing songs to Yahweh. There is one mention of them actually worshiping an idol. I mean, just an all-out star god kind of an idol. But there's a lot of mention of them actually going into the temple to worship Yahweh. Right? They're singing songs. They were tithing. They were doing sacrifices. So this isn't an utterly pagan culture in the sense of outward pagan worship. They were going through the motions of doing, they were having the feast God told them to have. They were going through the motions of doing the things God had told them to do. But their hearts were empty. And the Lord even says, he says, I despise your feast. Um, So one thing was empty worship. The other is materialism and the pursuit of luxury and greed. And the last one's going to be social injustice and and a hard-heartedness toward the poor. Let's look at um, this idea of, of, well, the one picture of outright idolatry is in chapter 5, verse 25 through 26. And it says, Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Succoth, your king, and Chun, your, God, your idol, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And even though there is a picture of outright idolatry, this picture to me of this subtle idolatry in their hearts of just loving the things of the world is really gutting to me. It's really hard to hear this idolatry of comfort in their life. But let's look at what he says about that. Chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. So we have a picture of them just at ease in Zion and trusting in notable persons. Trusting in the authority and the notable persons in their time and not the Lord. Go down to verse 4. Who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for yourself musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourself with the best ointments. 
but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. So they have lots of luxuries, right? And they're stretched out, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph, which would have been their brothers, um, the fellow Israelites. And lastly, in chapter 5, verse 12. Oh, no, I'm sorry, actually 4-1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria. Um, as y'all read that this week, did any of you notice that? That's a pretty harsh word. Do you know who the cows of Bashan were? They were the women, okay? They were the women in their culture who had been raised like prime cattle and pampered and cared for. And he sarcastically calls them the cows of Bashan. So this is the women. Hear this, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who roam the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Behold, the day shall come upon you where he will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Can you picture it? What was going on in Israel? There's no threats of war right now. There's peace. They're feeling good about things. And yet their hearts are trusting in the luxury and the comfort that they're feeling and not in the living God. And they're going through the motions, right? They're, they're doing the, the feast. And yet you know, Scripture says, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Not the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, but it's our heart. And their hearts were far from the Lord. And judgment is coming. Not from a toothless lion, but from the Lion of Judah. Now, if we stopped here and packed up and, you know, closed up and went home, and that was the end of the revelation of Scripture, that would be bad news. And I can tell you all in my own heart as I read this, and as I even started reading Amos, this is hard. And it should be hard to hear because we are sinful people. And the Lord is holy. And if we packed up and went home, I can tell you all in my heart, I am dead meat with this text, okay? In my own heart, the Lord has revealed sin that I am dead meat, but for the grace of Christ. But that the Lord knew that we would be sinful people that would love the world far more than we loved him. And if he had not made a way with his own son to bear the wrath of our sin, we would be dead meat. But throughout this book, there are pictures, little pictures, of the coming of Christ that give us great hope and what God has done. It's like Wynn said of Aslan, he's more terrifying and more beautiful than anything I've ever seen. We can go to verse nine, chapter 9, rather, verse 8. Here's a picture of the hope. 
here at the last chapter. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. He will not utterly destroy it. There will be a remnant that is spared in the house of Jacob. There will be a seed, the promised seed, right, the Messiah, that is spared. And he says earlier in the book, he said, it is as if the shepherd pulls from the lion's mouth two legs and a piece of an ear will come out. It's mutilated and mangled, but there's a piece of an ear that's coming out. And it is the root of Jesse. It's the seed preserved. There will be judgment, but there will be a remnant. And as you know in Scripture, here we are in the Minor Prophets, right, with Amos, and this picture of the coming judgment, and we know this side of that, that Babylon is coming, and they will be cut down, and then Assyria, or rather Assyria is coming, and then Babylon's coming, that it will be cut down, but we do know that there will be a remnant reserve, preserved from the house of Jacob, a small remnant, and that they will come back, they will rebuild the temple, they will rebuild the wall, and then there will be 400 years of silence. He talks in Amos about the spiritual, and uh, Savaggio talked about it too, the spiritual famine that's coming. When the people are looking for the word of God, but they can't find it, there's a darkness coming. When they will search and they will not find it, there's 400 years of silence. It's like God goes dark. But he doesn't really go dark, right? Because in the 400 years of silence, God is working. It's like in your own life, we've experienced seasons of, of, of silence, it seems like. And God is not speaking, but he's working. And that was what's happening in human history while God behind the scenes is working out a plan of salvation. In history, we know that the Greeks come, the Greek Empire during this 400 years, and then the Roman Empire. And when the Roman Empire comes, what do they do? They build roads. They make a common language. They make a common currency. They establish peace with the Pax Romana. And unbeknownst to the Romans, they actually were this incredible instrument for setting the stage for the coming of the Messiah. They certainly didn't mean to do that, but they did. Because by the time the fullness of time had come, the world was ready for Jesus to be born and for the gospel to explode throughout the kingdom. And scripture says that in the fullness of time, and that word fullness is literally a picture of a pregnant woman. Have you heard that? It's a picture of a pregnant woman. Have you ever seen a pregnant woman and you're like, she is about to go. That was history, okay? In the fullness of time, at that moment, when time was ready, it says Christ was born, right? Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. God spoke. He spoke to Zechariah. He, he spoke to Mary. He spoke to Joseph. He spoke to shepherds. He spoke to angels. He spoke to wise men. All of a sudden, God starts speaking. And his final word is Jesus. The word became flesh in him. And that's the hope that Amos foreshadows, that God did not leave us, did not leave us cut down, but rather made a seed. Now, I've got a little chart here 
Okay, so I'm a visual learner, so if this helps you, these sort of things help me. If you picture like a little tree, this is little tree Israel, and at this time, and this is what Amos is prophesying to, at this time, Israel is like a little tree in a forest of nations. And through this little tree, God is showing the world how he relates to his people, how he blesses his people, how he disciplines his people, how he judges his people, right? He's giving the world a model of how God deals with his people, okay? And he's blessing them. This is Israel. Israel, however, as Amos prophesied, is cut down. It is cut down. But there is, from the stump, we know from Isaiah 11, a sprig of Jesse, there's a shoot that is not utterly cut down, and we can draw like a little tiny shoot. And that's the remnant, and that's the seed that Jesus will come from. And then, years later, when God speaks again with his son, it is as if the seed of Jesus now grows into a huge tree that this paper can't even hold that is now the kingdom of God. And Jesus said that it's like a mustard seed. It's so small, and yet it grows into a large tree. This now is what Jesus came that we're part of, what he bought for us. We are now part of the kingdom of God. He's established a new nation, and all people are brought into him. Okay, Jesus is the desire now of all nations. And in fact, in Acts, when the disciples are grappling with what do we do about the Gentiles? Is this for the Jews? And they have the Jerusalem Council. What does James bring up? He quotes Amos. Did you see that in the book? Let's look at that. I can find, find where I put that. What is that? Acts 15. You got it. Acts 15, 15 through 19. And turn there if you want, or I'll read it here. So this is James, actually in the New Testament, quoting from the book of, uh, book of Amos, chapter 9. After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Okay, so, so Amos was part of the Jerusalem council when it was decided that yes, yes, the Gentiles will be brought in. This now is for all nations. And Silvagio points out in that book that Jesus is the end of the drought and he is the start of a new nation, right? So the application. What do we take home from this book? First, we worship Christ, right? I am, and if you're in him, you are a piece of an ear pulled out of the lion's mouth, okay? I was dead meat, right? This word that Amos speaks to them could be spoken to me, and I would be dead meat apart from the grace of Christ, right? So we worship Jesus, God did not leave us there. He made a way through his very own son. So this is a call to worship Christ. 
And secondly, the application is this. We repent. We repent. We're now, we're now the king, part of the kingdom of God. We're a new nation. We now, on this earth, it's no longer the tabernacle or the temple where the presence of God lives. It's us. We now are walking around tabernacles or temples, the scripture says, of the Holy Spirit. God has put his glory in us, and we display his glory to the nations. And we are to be a peculiar people. I think Amos could come to my life and call me out, right? I think he could show up in Mount Pleasant and speak to us, right? And say, repent. Not because God this morning is here to guilt you. This is the good news. As women, right, we are so prone to guilt and shame. But I'm telling you guys, God has not come this morning to guilt you. I know I was thinking there's some woman in here who's sitting back there going, i got to return those curtains, you know. I'm taking the shoes back. You know, I mean, you start thinking about our life. I mean, that's not what God really wants, okay. He's not so much concerned about your curtains as he is your heart. Do you love the things of the world more than you love him? And God's got to deal with you on the application of that in your life. And I pray that we could all get on our knees and say, Lord, what does this mean in my life? Would you deal with me? Because what he wants is our hearts. He wants, when Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full, he wants us to believe that. Do we really believe that? That in him is the fullness, fullness of life. And that being part of the things that he's part of, that giving to Lottie Moon or serving the poor or loving our neighbors or adopting children or anything, loving, cleaning our toilets or loving our children or serving or laying down our own lives, anything that we do in the name of Christ that exalts justice and purity and holiness for his name's sake, anything that we're part of in that is far more joyful than anything they're selling at town center. Do we believe that? Right? Do I believe that in my heart? Do I really believe Jesus has life? This is the life that is truly the life. And it's greater joy to be part of that. It's like in Pilgrim's Progress when John Bunyan tells the story of Christian on his way to the celestial city and he's got his mind set. And Satan just throws all these things to try to waylay him. He throws in despair and doubting castle and he throws in fear. I mean, different things get different people. But one of the things he puts right there on the road to the celestial city is a town called Vanity Fair. And he sets up and it's these people just selling all these things. And when Christian walks through the town, Bunyan says he literally has to put his fingers in his ears to walk through the town. And as the people are going, won't you buy something? Won't you buy something? He, he says, we buy the truth. That's his chant as he goes there. I buy the truth. I buy the truth. Can we walk through our culture right here in Mount Pleasant? Can I walk through our culture and go, I buy the truth? Okay, this is my life. And, and we may be a peculiar people, but it glorifies the Lord when we do that. Do you see that? We're now his kingdom displayed, displayed to the world. 
when my son was little, my oldest son was little, and I was thinking of a verse to like pray over his life, you know. So I said, Lord, would you just give me a verse that I could pray over him? This is the verse that I wrote down years ago and for a long time put up on his door um, to pray over him. It's actually from it's actually about Moses. So think about Moses when he's in the Pharaoh's um, he's in the Pharaoh's palace. Like he could have stayed in Pharaoh's palace and had it made, right? He did not have to be concerned at all about those Israelites. He could have stayed there. He had it made. And yet, we know from Hebrews 11 this, and this is a verse. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ Greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And that's what I pray for my children is that when they become of age and they leave me, that they would choose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than all the treasures this earth has to offer, because they look to the reward. They know about heaven. They believe eternity is real. My son, another, my other son, was he was wanting this kind of tech gadgety thing for his birthday, and so we sat down. It's okay. Well, we pulled it up on Amazon, and it was like seven hundred dollars. I was like, okay. It kind of took me back because I had thought, okay, maybe we'll get that. Okay, maybe we won't, you know. And um, so I pull it up, and I was like, looked at it with him, and he kind of went, oh no, too. And um, I said, well, okay. Well, there's good news. And there's bad news, okay? The good news is this, that all that you want about this thing, you will have for eternity. Like in Christ, do we believe in heaven for all eternity, all the joy that this thing will give you, you can have. And as you lay down your life, as you give, as you love your little brother and your little sister, you're storing up treasures in heaven for all of eternity, so sort of, it's coming, right? The bad news is, you're not going to get it for your birthday this year, right? You know? but, but do we really believe that the treasures of Christ, the reward of heaven, is far better than anything on this earth at Town Center or Bell Hall or wherever it is that we love? Do we really believe the treasures of Christ are better and that we're going to enjoy it and that on this earth, we can store it up for later? I just was thinking, because I, I just was thinking, I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning even, fall fresh on us. Lead me to repentance. Scripture says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And I pray this morning that as the women in this church, and I'm, I'm with you, this is my church, I love you guys, and I love this place. As the women of this church, we would repent and we would say I'd rather be eaten by him than fed by anything else and that could, could we believe that even from us from us that God could bring revival that peculiar women in Mount Pleasant right that God could bring revival in this place
that he could be honored, that the kingdom of God could be exalted. And that things like justice for the poor, Amos calls it justice at the gates, that those things could be exalted for the name of Jesus. Man. If, you've, if you know me at all, you know, you know that I, I write little poems all in my journal. So this is just a little poem um, I was thinking about. Trembling, Lord, I must admit, I'm scared to hear my life submit. I dare approach and then withdraw to class my life for what I saw, a God of holy, awesome fame, whom choirs of angels bless his name. One with such wisdom, I cannot fathom what his will has thought for me within his sovereign plan, and so I tremble at this man. For this I know, his word makes clear A life with him means suffering here. But let me come and enter in with wild abandon, run from sin, and run, my Lord, in sheer delight to you by faith and not by sight, to let dim eyes that cannot see ahead rest in your word for me. It's scary to lay down our life, right? It's scary to look different. It's scary to do something different than keep up with the Joneses, right? Or to love those things. But this morning, let's see the true lion of Judah who laid down his life for us and say, I'd rather be eaten by him than fed by anything else. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are so thankful that you sent your own son that you did not leave us in our sin, that you found us as we loved the world, and you made a way for us. Lord, would you, by your Spirit, work in our hearts? Would you reveal what the application of Scripture is for us individually? Would you show us real specific things? Because you love us. Because you know that you are the fullness of life. Would you let us know you, Jesus? In your name I pray. Amen.